Welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet podcast series. My name is Georgia Ray, and I am your regular host. Today, we are bringing you an episode from our partnership with Sidley Austin, LLP. This episode is part of the third season of the podcast series entitled The Enforcement Angle. Through the year-long series, our goal is to discuss state and federal enforcement of environmental laws and regulations with senior enforcement officials and thought leaders on environmental enforcement in the United States and globally. The host of the series and today's episode is Justin Savage, a partner and the global co-leader of the environmental practice at Sidley Austin LLP. Justin is also joined by Nicole Nolist, a managing associate in Sidley Austin's environmental practice. Today, Justin and Nicole will speak with Todd Kim, the Assistant Attorney General of the U.S. Department of Justice's Environment and Natural Resources Division, or ENRD, and Kate Konchnik, Principal Deputy Assistant Attorney General of ENRD. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy. Thanks, Georgia. Glad you could join us today, Todd and Kate. How are you both doing? I'm doing great, thanks. It's great to be here talking to you and your listeners. Thanks to you and the Environmental Law Institute for the opportunity. Kate? Yeah, thank you. Pleasure to be here and look forward to the conversation. And how are you, Justin? Awesome, awesome. So, Kate and Todd, before we start, talk about your important work at ENRD, just tell us a little bit about yourselves, maybe where you grew up or anything interesting that we just might not know from your professional careers. Kate, you wanna go first? Yeah, I'll start. So, first of all, I feel, Justin, in the interest of full disclosure, we should tell your listeners that you and I are former colleagues and have litigated cases together at the Justice Department. So, that makes this a real treat for me to talk with you today. See, things that people might not know about me, I have spent at least one night in all 50 states, despite oh, wow. coming from Maryland. So I'm right here at home again, but I've been everywhere. And if I were not an environmental lawyer, I think I'd be a park ranger. Great, well, as for me, I'll just tell you a bit about my background. My parents are Korean immigrants. They came here in the 1960s to pursue higher education. They met here, married here, had my sister in Indiana, and then me in New Jersey. So that's where I grew up. I had a happy childhood. One particular memory that stands out for me, given my current job, is a classic RV trip we took when I, I think I was like 12. We went out to all the national parks. We saw Arches and Zion and Mesa Verde and Yellowstone and Grand Teton. It was fantastic. So I think maybe that's part of the reason why I got really interested in the environment. I also kind of grew up as a, well, an idealistic kid. There was a fifth grade social studies teacher who said I like to argue a lot, which maybe would, I took as a sign too. So I grew to really love the idea of the law as a way to use the power of my ideas and words for the public good. I think I'm just really lucky that I ended up at ENRD where I got to use the law and my interest in the environment for hopefully the public good. Awesome, very interesting, Kate and Todd. Thanks for those tidbits. We have some listeners who may not be familiar with ENRD. So can we start with a brief overview of what ENRD does and your respective roles in the division? Sure, I can take that. So ENRD is one of the main litigating divisions at the Department of Justice, or sometimes called the world's largest environmental law firm. We've got 
over 600 employees, including more than 400 attorneys. We've got 10 different sections, plus our new Office of Environmental Justice. I hope to get a chance to talk a little more about that later. Our mission is to protect the health and welfare of the American people, to preserve our landscapes and precious natural resources, and to ensure that all Americans are treated fairly under the law. So as you probably know, and your listeners, many of them know, we do this through civil and criminal enforcement of the nation's environmental and natural resource laws, defense of agency actions taken under those laws, acquisition of lands needed for federal projects, and litigation to secure and protect the rights and resources of federally recognized tribes. Our work is roughly split between affirmative and defensive cases. And our docket's a real busy one. In all, we usually have about 6,000 cases and matters pending at a time, including cases involving more than 150 statutes administered by many federal agencies, EPA and the Department of the Interior being our most frequent clients. And as the Assistant Attorney General, I have the real privilege of leading the division, with the support, I should say, of a fantastic front office that includes five Deputy Assistant Attorneys General, a Chief of Staff, and Senior Counsel. I'm immensely fortunate to have among them Kate as my Principal Deputy. And I'll hand it over to her. Thanks. As Todd noted, roughly half of our work is affirmative, meaning that the United States or one of our federal clients is named on the left side of the V. In a given year, our affirmative work might include asserting tribal treaty rights, prosecuting pesticide smugglers or dog rings, or enforcing clean air standards. In 2022, our enforcement work secured more than $3 billion in injunctive relief and another about $800 million for the U.S. Treasury in recovered cleanup costs, fines, and penalties. As Todd said, there are five deputies, three political and two career, in the front office of the Environment and Natural Resources Division, and each oversees at least two sections or offices of the division. I serve as Todd's principal deputy, and in that role, I oversee our law and policy section, the department's new Office of Environmental Justice, and the division's largest section, the Environmental Enforcement section, which covers our civil enforcement practice. Todd and Kim, thank you for that background. 6,000 cases is a very busy docket, so <laughs> very, very I busy. should say, we don't work <laughs> on every one of them every year, but there's a lot. <laughs> so you both started as career attorneys in ENRD. How has that informed your leadership today of ENRD? I'm really glad you raised this. In fact, it's not just Todd and myself, it's all of our political deputies were once career attorneys in ENRD. And that meant from day one in these political roles, we knew the work, we knew the people, and we knew the tremendous talent and high ethical standards that they embodied. I think what's more is not only did we all come from the career ranks, but I think all the political deputies and Todd began here as honors attorneys fresh from law school. And so this is where we learned how to litigate. This is where we learned how to be lawyers. And that, for that reason, ENRD, I'll speak for myself here, but it holds a really special place in my heart. I mean, this is where I grew up as a lawyer and it's why it's such an honor to be serving here today. Yeah, I'll build on that if I can. So. I did join the division right out of law school, then a clerkship, and it was just amazing training. I joined the appellate section, the opportunity and responsibility of being a relatively new attorney, flying around the country and arguing important cases before the courts of appeals. It was fantastic. And so having that responsibility, but also having the guidance and support 
from this amazing group of lawyers in the appellate section, dedicated, skilled, intelligent, strategic, public-minded public servants. It was just a great way to start my career, and it, it gave me certain skills and certain confidences and certain, well, certain trust. And maybe that's the most important thing it gave to me overall. It gave me trust in the staff of ENRD, not just the appellate section, the people I knew the most, but all of ENRD, because I really got to know a lot of the sections when I was here. And that trust has been so valuable to me in my current leadership position, being able to walk in the door and know already the caliber and the ethical outlook of all the people I'm working with was such a tremendous advantage. We could really get down to business and just deal with the cases without having to worry about anything else. I'd like to think there was some two-way trust there too because I was also a bit of a known quantity. And so being able to hit the ground running and really execute on the priorities of this administration and the needs of the federal government in court, well, it was really helpful to have been here before. And you've touched upon both of your career arcs and starting as career folks and now to your position now in the front office, but you've recently had some longtime career leaders retire, move on, such as Jim Kilborn, former head of appellate, Gene Williams, Bruce Kelber, Karen Dworkin, and Annie Mergen, all of which are titans within ERD and I think giants in the larger legal environmental bar today. So how do you foster and develop that next generation of career leaders and giants in ENRD? Great question, Justin, and this is something I think about a lot, and you hit it right on the nose when you talk about giants and titans. Jim and Gene and Bruce and Karen and Andy, every one of them had decades of experience with the NRD, collectively well over a century. They're real substantive experts. They're renowned inside the Department of Justice and out. Let me note, though, maybe a little less known common thread in their contributions. Each one of the people you mentioned was dedicated to development of all the people at ENRD. Each one of them took it as a critical part of their management mission to create an environment where people grow, where people have responsibility and support and that shared sense of mission that brings ENRD together. And so you end up with people who keep stepping up. People who keep stepping up to support their teammates, keep stepping up to work for the American people year after year in a virtuous cycle that we hope continues. And so I think that's one thing that I really appreciate and admire about the people you mentioned, but also I'm seeing in the people who are still at ENRD, we have people who keep on taking on that ethos of development of all the people at ENRD. Take Lisa Russell and Seth Barsky, who I was very happy to name as Gene and Bruce's replacements as career deputy assistant attorneys general. Lisa and Seth, like the people you mentioned, have their eyes on the prize of making sure that the division is as healthy as it can be, and that means that the people of the division are supported. So I think that that kind of ethos is one of the reasons why the Partnership for Public Service has often named ENRD as one of the best places to work in the federal government. And as for me, as the Assistant Attorney General, I'm trying to keep it going, not get in the way of the good thing. Well, our podcast is the enforcement angle, and that means we should probably talk about ENRD's critical role in enforcing the nation's environmental laws. And can you just give us, you touched on it a little earlier, but just maybe a little bit more detail or in a sense of the division's civil and criminal enforcement docket and how it goes about its work with EPA, U.S. Attorney's Office, and other law enforcement partners. Sure, I can speak to that. So EPA looms large. We said this, that half of our casework is affirmative, roughly. And of that, far and away, our largest client, both on the criminal and civil sides of the house, is EPA. 
this is the work people probably most often think of when they think about ENRD's enforcement work or the federal government's enforcement work. So this is enforcement of Clean Air Act standards, the Clean Water Act, the Toxic Substances Control Act, other pollution and public health statutes and regulations. Sometimes the sections are working on entirely separate matters that have come over from EPA, either civil enforcement or from investigators or from community tips. Other times the two sections are working in parallel, the environmental enforcement section and the environmental crime section, on different claims arising out of the same incident. And so we have all sorts of policies about how to do that and protect grand jury materials all at the same time. I used the word client when I said EPA had this important role for us, but that's actually a civil enforcement bias. So on the civil side of the house, in the normal course of things, we wait for a fully developed referral from EPA or another federal client agency before engaging on a matter. That referral will reflect months and sometimes years of investigation and negotiation with a company or another entity. And those agencies, as a result, are, are really up to speed on the case and deeply embedded in the personalities and pitfalls of the matter before it's referred to us. And so they continue to stay involved as highly informed clients to our case teams. On the criminal side, our attorneys are often working in close coordination with EPA's criminal investigators, other federal agents, and U.S. attorney's offices much earlier in the life cycle of the case. So they're developing counts together, they're finding witnesses, and they're working together towards grand jury indictments. In addition to EPA, the division's enforcement folks, of course, work with many other federal agencies as well. On the civil side, we do a lot of work with the Department of the Interior and its various bureaus and offices. Increasingly on the civil side, we are working with the Coast Guard. The environmental crime section has had a longer standing relationship with the Coast Guard and also has strong relationships with agencies ranging from USDA for animal welfare cases to OSHA on worker safety and worker death cases and the State Department, Homeland Security and other of our sort of international transnational agencies on transnational crimes, including timber and wildlife trafficking. Across our work in the criminal context, the environmental crime section is often working quite closely and in deep partnership with U.S. attorney's offices across the country. And that looks differently in different cases. So sometimes it is Maine Justice, ENRD's environmental crimes folks taking the lead on a case. Other times, first chair is held by an AUSA in the particular locale where the crime is alleged to have occurred but they are often working quite closely together. We do that as well on the civil side, but not nearly as extensively as on the criminal side. Switching topics a bit, but one of the perennial questions that comes up from companies and individuals in our practice, what are some of the key factors that ENRD considers in deciding to whether to bring a criminal case? Well, we at ENRD understand the importance of appropriate use of the criminal law. Though far fewer in number than civil enforcement actions, criminal prosecutions are indispensable as a powerful deterrent to illegal behavior. And that's true under environmental statutes just like other statutes. I think a genuine threat of criminal prosecution can and will change the conduct of individuals and corporations who would not be deterred by the threat of civil enforcement alone. 
And so we've got 35 prosecutors in our environmental crime section. They're hard at work on pollution crimes, wildlife and animal welfare crimes, worker safety crimes, and more. Let me emphasize, we prioritize prosecuting individuals, those who commit and profit from corporate malfeasance. Only individuals can go to jail, and we've found that criminal corporate accountability starts with accountability for individuals, those responsible for criminal conduct. But more specifically, and stepping back, we follow the principles of federal prosecution. If an attorney in our environmental crime section believes that a person's conduct constitutes a federal offense, and also that admissible evidence will probably be sufficient to sustain a conviction, then the attorney should recommend federal prosecution unless one of three mitigating factors applies. So first, we won't prosecute if we'd serve no substantial federal interest. And we think about a lot of different factors, law enforcement priorities, the nature and seriousness of the offense, the deterrent effect of the particular prosecution, the person's culpability and history and circumstances, any way in which the person has cooperated in the investigation or prosecution of others, and of course, the interests of any victims to the crime. Second, we consider whether the person is subject to effective prosecution in another jurisdiction. And third, we consider whether there's any adequate non-criminal alternative to prosecution. Again, we weigh lots of different considerations. These will often include, for instance, the sanctions or the other measures that are available under the non-criminal alternative. So the analysis, will, of course, will differ from case to case. But for us, the principles we apply are the same ones that apply in the Justice Department's prosecution of non-environmental crimes. So in many of the president's executive orders, like 13990, we see that climate change is a priority of the administration. How is ENRD executing on that priority to address climate change? Thanks, Nicole. Yeah, this is absolutely a top priority for the administration. It's also just on very practical terms becoming a priority for the division. Given our line of work, we are often on the front lines of the impacts of climate change, whether it's negotiating water allocation rights in the drought-stricken West, or enforcing the Clean Water Act against municipal wastewater and stormwater systems that are becoming overwhelmed by more frequent or more intense storms. So we have a three-pronged approach to addressing this work. We have affirmative work that seeks to curb the emission of greenhouse gases. We have affirmative work that is seeking to protect natural resources who serve, among other purposes, serve as uh, really important climate sinks. And third, we have a lot of defensive litigation related to client agency rulemaking related to climate change. So I'll speak to the first two and then Todd can talk a bit about our defensive rulemaking. In that first bucket, so that's affirmative litigation to reduce or curb greenhouse gases, we will use statutory authority directed at specific greenhouse gases when that is available. A great example of this work is the work to enforce the careful management and phase out of ozone-depleting substances under the Montreal Protocol and Title VI of the Clean Air Act, and now also under the Bipartisan AIM Act. Molecule for molecule, this could be the most impactful work that the division does on climate change. For instance, the refrigerant R12 contains chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs, that have more than 10,000 times the global warming potential of carbon dioxide. ENRD, for the past 20 years, has stopped CFC smuggling at the border. 
and driven large chain grocery stores and metal recycling facilities across the country to better manage and destroy these chemicals. We're also now participating, since the enactment of the AIM Act, we're participating in a multi-agency enforcement initiative led by EPA and Customs and Border Protection to prevent the illegal trade, production, use, and sale of hydrofluorocarbons. And as your audience may know, these are the compounds that were created to replace the ozone-depleting substances, the CFCs. And while they served that purpose, it turns out that in some instances, they are even more potent global warming chemicals than what they replaced. And so this enforcement initiative, we're really excited to be part of it and think it can have a really strong impact on the United States commitments around the globe and here at home to cut greenhouse gases. We also do a lot of Clean Air Act enforcement work where the target pollutant isn't a greenhouse gas, but the inevitable result of compliance with standards for these other air pollutants is curbing of climate pollution as well. And our methane work in the landfill space and in the oil and gas sector are nice exemplars of that work. In that second bucket that I mentioned, the affirmative work to protect natural resources, our environmental defense section works really closely with the Army Corps and EPA to protect wetlands, which, among other functions, serve as important carbon sinks. Meanwhile, our environmental crimes section, as I noted earlier, prosecutes timber trafficking. And our law and policy section builds enforcement capacity in other countries to combat illegal logging. We also, as a division, file claims on behalf of Indian tribes or federal agencies to secure water rights and reserved treaty, hunting, fishing, and gathering rights on behalf of tribes. And all of these have really important intrinsic values of their own, but there are these climate knock-on effects when we protect these natural resources. Todd, do you want to speak to the defensive work that we do in service of climate? Sure. So yeah, Kate's mentioned a lot of important work we're doing on the affirmative side, but I'll just note some of the important work we're doing on the defensive side. NRD's docket and contains many important cases where we're defending other agencies' actions relating to and addressing the climate crisis. So I won't go through the whole list, but these cases include cases where we're defending EPA rules on greenhouse gas emissions, often from mobile and stationary sources under the Clean Air Act. Cases where we're defending agency decisions relating to the permitting and siting of renewable energy infrastructure, such as offshore wind projects, often under the National Environmental Policy Act. I can go on and on, but there's a healthy docket of cases on that side. And with the affirmative side and the defensive side, I'll just close by saying ENRD is really on the front lines of the Biden administration's fight against climate change. Kate and Todd, thank you for that comprehensive response on how ENRD is addressing and tackling the climate change priority. So let's talk a bit about other priorities. What are some of the other ENRD enforcement priorities currently? I'm so glad you asked. Environmental justice. Environmental justice is another major priority for the division. All Americans, no matter their economic status or their zip code or the color of their skin, should be able to breathe clean air, have access to safe drinking water, and be protected from the worsening effects of climate change. Yet, all too often, low-income communities, communities of color, and tribal communities suffer disproportionately from environmental harms. So we at ENRD, we're prioritizing efforts to help all overburdened communities. Last May, following President Biden's direction in one of his very first executive orders, the Justice Department took two key steps that we want to talk about. First, 
we created our own Office of Environmental Justice, now led by ENRD veteran Cynthia Ferguson. And second, we published a comprehensive environmental justice enforcement strategy. I'll talk about the Office of Environmental Justice, which we call OEJ, and then hand it off to Kate to talk about the strategy. So OEJ is housed within ENRD, but it's charged with working to coordinate environmental justice activities across the entire Justice Department. So that means not just ENRD, but also the Civil Rights Division, the Office of Tribal Justice, all 94 U.S. Attorney's Offices, and more, because there are so many components, not just ENRD, with important roles to play in the fight for environmental justice. OEJ doesn't litigate itself, but we think it's a real force multiplier that can enhance environmental justice expertise within DOJ and advance this mission across our client agencies. So the office is working with environmental justice coordinators located in every single one of the U.S. Attorney's offices across the country, and it's holding listening sessions to build trust with communities and better understand the burdens they face. Now let me pause here to note, of course, EPA is a key partner. We're working with them and indeed mirroring work that they're doing in their Office of Environmental Justice and External Civil Rights. We ourselves are trying to build stronger ties between ENRD and the Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division so that we can have our civil rights and environmental justice experts building off each other's expertise to make sure that the entire Department of Justice is doing as much as we can for those overburdened communities out there. Kate, do you wanna talk about the strategy? Sure. As Todd said, both the Office of Environmental Justice and this comprehensive environmental justice enforcement strategy are department-wide. So this is a broad mandate, an ambitious charge, and you may have noticed it didn't come with an organic statute. So we have not been given new legal authorities to advance environmental justice. We are litigators, right, at the division in our sister litigating components and in those 94 U.S. attorney's offices that Todd spoke of. The EJ coordinators that have been named in each of those offices are trial attorneys. They are AUSAs. About two-thirds of them are civil and one-third are criminal. So when we think about EJ enforcement through that litigation lens, we think about, all right, well, we've already been doing a lot of this work. How do we more intentionally integrate environmental justice into that framing as we are prosecuting cases? And it really comes down to the strategy has four principles, but it, it sort of comes down to three questions. Where are we enforcing? How are we enforcing? And with whom are we enforcing? So where is the strategy calls on us to be working on cases and looking for enforcement opportunities that will deliver benefits to underserved and overburdened communities? It turns out that is where a lot of the violations are that we see. And so there is that, unfortunately, already that overlap, but it's something that we are looking at in a more intentional way with our client agencies. The how is thinking about the remedies that we might bring to bear as we are seeking to resolve these enforcement actions so that the community that has borne the brunt of violations of public health and safety laws has some sort of remedy that mitigates the harm, that offsets the harm, or otherwise is serving in some sort of compensatory fashion to make up for the harms that were borne by that community. 
And finally, the with whom question is, how can we bring impacted communities along with us? We obviously have, when we are working up a case for a grand jury, for instance, or when we are in confidential settlement negotiations on the civil side, there are things we cannot share with the public, but there are also pieces of information we can share with the public. And so figuring out where that line is and being a lot more open to early engagement with impacted communities, hearing from them, thinking of the impacted communities as a source of information, witness statements in cases, for instance, thinking of the community as a source of ideas for remedies, opening up this sort of two-way line of communication. And so a lot of the work that Todd was talking about that the Office of Environmental Justice is doing, training, outreach, all of this is in service of this strategy and figuring out how to activate these different activities and answer these questions when we're prosecuting the nation's laws. Thanks, Kate. And just circling back to what's already been done, are there accomplishments that seem particularly meaningful now that you're about halfway through President Biden's term? Yeah, so, well, let me mention, as emblematic of the kind of work we're striving to do, our work on the Jackson water crisis, which captured the nation's attention last summer. So let me go over some of the facts, which are probably familiar to you and many of your listeners. After record rainfalls and extreme flooding in late August, and years of neglect. The city was unable to produce enough water to maintain adequate water pressure within its system. For more than a week, many of the system's users went without running water entirely. They lost the security that most of us take for granted, that at the turn of a tap, you can have water to drink or use for basic hygiene and safety, washing your hands, bathing, flushing toilets, fighting fires, even cleaning dishes. Like so many Americans, we watched as this situation unfolded with frustration and sadness. And we also knew these most recent events were not the first of the city's struggles. Jackson's residents have lacked access to reliably safe drinking water for years. The administrator of the EPA, Kate, and I flew down to Jackson in September to talk with the mayor. And in just a few months, by November, we were able to file in federal court both a complaint under the Safe Drinking Water Act and an agreement for an interim order that we had negotiated with the city and the Mississippi State Department of Health. The court in turn agreed to enter the order and thus appointed an interim third-party manager to manage and operate the city's public drinking water system for the time being, to oversee priority capital projects, and put the system on the right path to delivering reliable, clean drinking water to the people of Jackson. This was an achievement, but I should emphasize, the work's not done yet. The next goal in court is to hammer out a judicially enforceable consent decree that will achieve long-term sustainability of this public water system. And there are many technical and operational challenges ahead. But with our Jackson filings, we took an important step towards finally giving this community the relief it so desperately deserves. It's simply unacceptable that there are communities in the United States without access to safe, reliable drinking water. This is an example of the kind of work we believe ENRD can do to provide relief to Americans who disproportionately bear the burdens of underinvestment. Kate and Todd, thank you so much for just the comprehensive overview that Kate provided on how DOJ is implementing the EJ strategy that was published last May and the focus on securing benefits and remedies for EJ communities. Can you talk a bit about what companies can do to advance environmental justice? Thank you for asking that question. We would love to have companies doing what they can to advance environmental justice. And so what we're hearing time and again in our community listening sessions is frankly fatigue. Communities want dialogue, but what they really want, results. They want it from us, and 
They want it from you. They want to live in cleaner, safer communities. They want physical, visible differences in their quality of life. So we're going to do everything we can. We'll continue to do that with our federal and state and tribal partners. But significant change can come from the companies themselves. You understand this. Corporate boards and shareholders understand this. I think that's why many of your clients include environmental justice reporting in your ESG metrics. So a couple of things you can think about. Being a good corporate neighbor, it means getting ahead of the problems. Acting before there's even a regulation in place, if you know an existing process, may compromise worker safety or community health. Not letting violations multiply and linger. Consider making use of EPA's audit policy to let us know if your client is experiencing violations so we can work to address those problems together and reduce burdens on communities. And of course, your client's potential exposure down the road. Building lines of communication with your residential neighbors can be enormously useful. And build environmental justice metrics into bonus structures or otherwise incentivize managers based on impacts to and relations with neighboring communities. These are just some ideas. There's lots of smart people out there who are very well-intentioned and, and we encourage everyone to put their thinking caps on. Thanks, Todd. Justin? Thanks. That's a helpful answer. But until the last administration, ENRD for decades, use supplemental environmental projects or SEPs to provide environmental and public health benefits to communities as part of a resolution, a penalty or fine resolution. Now over the summer, Attorney General Garland issued a memo on SEPs involving third parties in an interim final rule on the issue. The question is what, if anything, might we expect on SEPs in 2023 from DOJ? Thanks, Justin. I'll take that. So yes, as you noted in your intro, for decades, and, and certainly when you and I were in the environmental enforcement section, we were using SEPs as just a critical tool to resolve environmental enforcement cases alongside a penalty and injunctive relief to bring companies into compliance with the underlying statute. And so we are happy to have this remedy restored keeping in mind that we've got some new guidelines from the Attorney General that modestly changes how we've done these in the past. But for the most part, we are really looking forward to engaging with the defense bar on these because we think when they are properly designed and when they are tied closely enough to the underlying statute and the violations that are alleged, they can really bring some nice environmental and public health benefits to the community that was the victim of in the criminal context or just subject to excess pollution in the civil context. So what can you expect to see in 2023? We are looking to engage with defendants on these matters. We've been taking under consideration proposals that defendants bring to us when they are offering a penalty and injunctive relief to resolve a matter with the Department of Justice. When we receive those proposals, we are making sure that they meet the Attorney General's guidelines, that they comply with the law, and that they adhere to the purposes of the underlying statute. I think to sort of read the tea leaves or sort of see where we might be headed, folks could take a look at some of the administrative settlements that are coming out of EPA, where we are starting to see quite a few supplemental environmental projects as part of a global resolution. So we are seeing diesel reduction projects. We are seeing projects where a defendant provides emergency equipment to local governments, particularly in heavily industrialized areas, that they are capable of responding to a spill or some other unintended incident. 
And so I think there you can see the kinds of projects that the defense bar has been proposing and that we have found have met the terms. Of course, when EPA is handling these settlements administratively, the Justice Department is not usually involved yet. And yet those are, so far it seems like a lot of those projects are the types that we are starting to have proposed as well in the judicial context. And so stay tuned. But I think you will likely be seeing some steps in that judicial context as well coming up. I think we'll all be looking forward to taking a look at those. Turning to another subject, the AAG for the Criminal Division, Kenneth Polite, recently announced a new corporate enforcement policy, and it provides guidance on effective corporate compliance programs, including self-disclosure. From an ENRD perspective, Todd and Kate, do you have any thoughts for corporations on how to design and manage an effective compliance program to avoid enforcement? Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. So I think maybe my overarching thing is We'd want to see a corporate culture that is a law-abiding corporate culture and that wants to remain a law-abiding corporate culture. It should go without saying a corporation will be in a better position to avoid enforcement as well as, of course, to, to remediate any problems where it already has a strong internal infrastructure that supports future environmental compliance. The heart of this infrastructure is going to be a commitment to comprehensive, periodic environmental audits of business operations so that you can verify compliance with environmental requirements, so that you can identify areas of non-compliance and so that you can provide mechanisms for correcting deficiencies. Also, keep track of the compliance steps you take. If your company needs to demonstrate to us that prosecution is unwarranted, you'll be in a much stronger position if you've documented and remediated any issues and can demonstrate a consistent and continual effort to improve your compliance program. Again, corporate culture. Another thing, institute systems to establish accountability all the way up the corporate chain for environmental issues. Are you, for instance, clawing back compensation for those responsible for environmental violations? By proactively implementing compliance functions and spending resources on anticipated problems, a company can both avoid regulatory actions and receive credit from the government. And by cultivating a corporate culture that fosters compliance, these steps serve the shareholders, the public at large, and the environment. Thanks, Todd. And turning to our last question, just any closing thoughts on ENRD and its work? My closing thought on ENRD and its work is that I feel so lucky every day to be sitting in this office, working with this team of remarkable people doing just remarkable work. My position is time limited but I have full faith that in the years and decades to come, the good women and men of ENRD will continue protecting the environment, protecting our natural resources for the good of the American people. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. And we really appreciate you sharing some of your terrific insights. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.